This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, Now, up to to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Boone. Today on the program, I sit down with a four-time All-Star, the seven-time Gold Glove winner, uh, he's currently broadcasting for the Los Angeles Angels. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Langston. Langer, thanks for coming on the program. Booney, thanks for having me. It's been a while. It was good catching up. Uh, for those of you listening to the Boom Podcast, uh, we just got back. A lot of us just got back from a whirlwind, a week up in Seattle, and, and we got to hang out and, and talk a little bit. It was good catching up. Biggest story in baseball right now. Shohei Otani, you probably never talked about it. Mark yeah. does the games for the Angels every night, so I'm sure he's he doesn't ever tackle this one. But I'm running out of ways to describe it. I never thought we'd see this. I never thought, in my wildest dreams, I never thought we'd see it at this level. You know, I thought right. one day, as, as life goes on, things improve. You see things. I thought one day maybe a you know maybe a seven hole hitter in the lineup, maybe a guy that will chew up a few innings in the bullpen. That might happen one day, but this is unbelievable. Give it to me. You see it on the daily. Explain to the audience what you're seeing. Yeah, I think both of us have seen guys, you know, in the runs during the National League, some pitchers that were were pretty good hitters, not great hitters, but could hold their own in the batter's box. Some guys that had some power. You knew when on the mound, you would, you would have a scouting report on some certain pitchers. Like, hey, man, this guy could swing the bat to where you had to pay attention to him instead of the guy that you knew you could just run right through him. Uh, Shohei, you know, you never know. When he first came over, when you throw 100 and, and 102 like Shohei's capable of, you always know that's going to play no matter what. So I always thought the pitching side of it, he would be fine. But I thought the offensive side, it's a different ball game over here in the majors compared to what they face in Japan as far as the elite pitchers that are over here. This is the world's best. In Japan, they have Japan's best. This is the world's best. I thought he would struggle offensively and right out of the gate. And he had a horrible spring. His first spring with the Angels was horrible to the point he had a big high leg kick. He made instant adjustments. He got rid of that big high leg kick. All of a sudden, just basically did a quick toe tap. And off he went. So offensively, I was already like going, wow, 
maybe this guy's going to be a, a okay hitter here at the major league level and be able to hold his own. And we've just seen that obviously at Tommy John, you know, after his first season with the angels, uh, you know, when the season ended, but he came back, he was a DH. So we never saw the total package in play. You always went, okay, I've seen glimpses of the pitching, seen offensively, I've seen him be able to do some things offensively, drive the ball the other direction. But we really didn't see the whole total package come together until two years ago when he won his first MVP, where you went, oh my gosh, pitching-wise on point, 45 home runs for Shohei. That is legit. And then last year, obviously, you know, the, the season that Aaron Judge had, you know, he, I, Shohei to me was still like, I don't know how you could overlook what Shohei was doing last year. He didn't have the same offensive numbers, but he had better pitching numbers last year than he did the year before where he won the MVP. And then you come into this season and it, uh, you know, the pitching side's a little bit down for him this year, but the offensive side is through the roof. This guy is such an impact guy in this lineup. And you're talking now a team without Mike Trout, without protection, no Anthony Redone, no Mike Trout. There is not a ton of protection around this guy. And again, last night he hits his 34th home run of the season. <laughs> Booney, I don't, you know, we just came from the All-Star game. This guy made the All-Star team as a hitter and as a pitcher. Yeah. He made it in both elements. So uh, I'm, I'm with you. I don't know if we will ever, I mean, ever see a guy do it at the level that Shohei's able to do it. And I'm with you, too. A year ago, we're sitting here. Well, not a year. The postseason awards a year ago. Yeah. And I was in the minority. I, I know people in Anaheim. And in Southern California, we're saying exactly what they were echoing. What you were saying was show he's the MVP. I'm trying to take this from a non-biased situation as I can. I'm looking at Aaron Judge and as an offensive player that played this game a long time, what Aaron Judge, what, once you start putting a six in front of your home runs, it's a different level. It's a different yes. world. What Aaron Judge did last year, one of the greatest offensive seasons in the history of baseball. I'll give you that. but. As long as Shoei's, he he's playing at kind of what we expect him to play at and come to expect now, nobody else is even in the conversation for me. Right. It's not even close. I don't care if Shoei hit 30 homers, which I say 30 homers like a bad year, <laughs> and, and has a 3-9 ERA. He's going to the mound every fifth day and hitting 30. That's automatic MVP. It's automatic. Right. You cannot replace that level of uh, performance. It, it's right. it's not even scalable. Anyway, I'm with you on that. A year ago, he should have two MVPs in a row. This year, the MVP is already over. He oh, should, it's over. It should be his third straight. Um, and, yeah, I feel bad. Uh, Aaron Judge, you, you should win the Hank Aaron Award. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. You're yeah. Show he should have he should have two MVPs and I'm one of those guys yeah. that if you earn the award oh no we, you know Show he's going to win it a lot it doesn't matter when you win it you win it give me the sure. hardware that's the way it is because we have a short window to collect as much hardware as we can sure. that's no, not yeah. why we, that's not why we play the game but you know you know, a guy that won seven gold gloves hey I want my gold glove if I earned it you know that's just the way life is um, strictly from a pitcher's perspective yeah. Your career, anyone you ever saw, you got any comps to show Otani on the mound? Oh, man. That's, you know, Shohei, I've seen 
he's got so many different weapons and that's the thing. And we don't even see the split anymore before he had one of the best splits that I had seen. You know, when you throw again, 101 miles an hour, you know, it as a hitter, you've got to dial that bat speed up. And then you have a absolute wipeout swing and miss split. That's right behind it. You're in trouble because you know, if he gets the two strikes that splits right behind it. And it's coming in at 91, 92. He threw it at 93. Sometimes it's almost impossible with great depth to it for you to lay off it when he executed right down the middle of the plate. Cause you know, as a hitter that looks hittable, I got to go get it. And the bottom mm-hmm. falls out. You're in big trouble. Um, it's tough to get comps because there's times you see that there's times you see, you know, one of the best fastballs in the game of baseball. He's got this big sweeping slider. They call it the sweeper, but it's just a big break slider uh, that he's had a lot of success with this. And he's had a lot of issues with it this year, that thing. And you know, better than me as a hitter, the more you see it, the more comfortable you're going to get with it. Yes. If he executes it and puts it in good spots, he he will get you out and and usually it's a swing and miss. But when he makes a mistake, that's the one a guy like you, you're going to jump all over it because you've seen it so much. So he's gotten to the point to where he was using it so much that guys were hitting it out and uh, he made some mistakes with it. So now we're seeing a little more velo. He's going a little more fastballs, a little cut. Now he's mixing the cutter. It, it, that's the part that's the hardest thing. I don't, you know, most guys you can game plan and go, okay, we kind of know a little bit of a window what you're going to see. Shohei has got to be the toughest guy in the majors to game plan for. So that's what makes it hard for me to compare him to a lot of other guys because he has so many different weapons to attack you with. Maybe you, Darvish, and you know, another guy that comes from Japan in his prime, when you was in his prime and through, you know, he had six or seven different weapons to use and a great split to go with it. Um, but it's hard to compare him because he's got one of the better sweeping sliders. He's got one of the best fastballs. So he, he, he checks a lot of boxes for a lot of different guys. He is a fierce, and I mean fierce competitor on the mound does not want to ever give up a run, doesn't ever want to come out of a game. Those things that I, that's old school. I love that stuff. The guys that want it, they want, he wants to compete. He wants, you know, and the big thing with Shohei, you know, it's the big stage. He wants a big stage. He excels when the lights get brighter. Uh, and it, it's just fun to watch him when, from a pitching standpoint, uh, knowing that when he's on the mound, he's always that guy. You, you played along with a lot of, great aces in the world in your time. And when they're on the mound, you expect to win that game. That game has got to be a W in your back pocket. You're right. You, you mentioned the <clears throat> getting a little, uh, the overuse of the slider and as hitters, yeah. what, what we try to do and what I try to do to any ACE, man, if I can eliminate one of their pitches, it becomes yeah. more predictable for me. And if, and right. if you got so many pitches that I'm not sure what you're going to go with tonight, it's a guessing game. Uh, <clears throat> you know, well, I always went into the aces. I always went into a Randy Johnson, a Pedro, a Maddox, a Smoltz, a Glavin. And I've got to get on one or the other because I'm not going right. to hit, but I'm not going to hit Randy's slider and I'm not right. going to hit his fastball. Now, I can touch his slider. I'm not saying I can't physically hit it. I'm talking about hit it and hurt him with it. Uh, It's either one or the other. And if I'm on the wrong side of the ledger, it's going to be a long night for me. Shohei, you know, it's it's either soft or hard, but it seems like everything's hard. I I had a hitting coach. He'll go unnamed. But I remember we were facing somebody. I forget who had a nasty split. And he said, Booney, here's the deal. If he starts the split as a strike, you know it's going to be a ball. 
and and I I put my hand on my head. I said, "Don't you realize that the split has the illusion that it's a fastball? That's why we chase yeah. it. If right. I knew it was a split, I know it's going to be in the dirt. Right. I'm not going to swing at it, but I couldn't believe it. And this hitting coach was a prominent hitter, and I'm going, have we forgot what hitting is like and how hard right. it is? But interesting. Uh, Mark Langston, you're in your prime. Face and showy. Any way you attack him on the hitting side? Yeah. I mean, to me, I'm still, I've got to make him beat me the other direction. And he's got pop the other way. He's got line to line power. That's a second to none. Uh, and he's got plate coverage second to none. That's the thing that's impressive to me. Uh, last night, he almost hit a ball out uh, in that game last night against the Astros. On a pitch that's outside, no legs. I'm talking zero lower half. And he was able to extend and still boogie whip it almost into the right field seats. It ended up hooking foul. But the plate coverage that he has is dangerous. He's a guy that uh, I'm just going to kind of explain the way he he goes about it before I tell you how I would go after him. But, uh, you know, he can, he can hit he hits velocity. And that's one thing. It's tough to do both. But he's able to do both because of the plate coverage that he has. Even when he's fooled and doesn't have any lower half, he can still extend and do damage that direction. And he can get to elevated fastballs with velo on it. And uh, it's impressive. I still got to pound him in. I need to pound him in hard to make him so conscious of that fastball. And uh, once I can, if I feel like I can just do a little bit of work inside, Obviously, then I'm going sliders and breaking balls off that outside part of plate. And if you beat me the other way, big guy, I, I will tip my hat. But you are going to have to beat me into the left center field area. And you bring uh, another guy that you've seen a lot. Uh, we we're talking plate coverage is like a Vladimir Guerrero senior. Sure. I mean, yes. I played against him for you and I was amazed. And we'd be in the hitters meetings or the pitchers meetings. And they sometimes they'd bring me in from a defensive standpoint and say, sure. what do you think with Vladdy? I said, Throw it down the middle. I said, you think you're going to get him to nibble off the plate? His strength is hitting balls out of the strike zone. He was right. that one in a million guy that I'd never seen, that any of us had ever seen before, that was a Hall of Fame offensive player, but didn't walk much. Right. He would swing at right. anything and would do damage on anything. When you talk about plate coverage, I think of that. All right, I want one. I got one more question for you about Showy, and then we can move on. Yeah. Uh, as a fan. I watch, we all have our preconceived notions as ex-players. Some guys rub us wrong. Some guys we like right out of the gate. Right. Shohei, that smile, yeah. uh, he seems, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, you see him on a daily basis. It seems that in a humble way, he realizes how ridiculous what he's doing right now is. I think he sits there and goes, you know, pinches himself like, I can't believe I'm doing it at this high of a level. But it's not in an arrogant way. It's in a humble way. I see it when he steals a base. Like, oh, yeah, by the way, I can I can steal 20 as well. It's almost like he, he steals second base, looks at the second base. The second baseman, I know what he's thinking. What can't this guy do? Right. But in a way, he's kind of smiles at him like, man, I'm having fun. And I, I don't know how I do all this, but I do it. And I, and I realize that I'm... I'm doing things that no one else has done before, but it's not in an arrogant, like, yeah, get out of my way type way. It's I'm embracing the game, the face of baseball. It's great, 
because he's doing what he's yep. doing. Such a big star coming to free agency is going to be ridiculous for him. But he's doing it like in a real little kid type way, and, it, and it's refreshing. And for older players, ex players like like me and you to watch him, it's just it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I, I've said it. You know, obviously the Angels have another superstar in Mike Trout, and Mike Trout. Uh, and before, obviously, Shohei got here, and I always tell people, close your eyes and have a picture in your head of what you think your superstar is like. I go, Mike Trout is that guy. Is a guy that, you know, I always look to the great players in, when I'm sitting in the dugout watching them play, you know, the Cal Ripkins, the Robin Younts, the Paul Molitors, these guys. Uh, you watch them, how they go about their business, and Mike Trout was always that guy. He would hit a ground ball back to the pitcher. He puts, he puts his head down. And he sprints to first base. Uh, he never takes a playoff. He's always playing hard. Shohei, but you don't see the, the kind of the kid-like atmosphere with Trout. Trout's a business, more business-like, very focused. Shohei, I'm with you. Shohei, it looks like he's having as much fun as we are watching him. He's having the same fun doing the things that we love watching. Uh, he's he's He has that infectious smile that is, uh, it's, it just carries over. You can see his teammates love him. They absolutely adore the guy because they're in awe, obviously, watching what he does. Uh, and then he interacts with them. You know, it's not like he's, he does it and then he sits over to the side and doesn't interact. He's goofing around with them in between innings, you know, and, and has some fun with these guys. I've seen it many times. They have the samurai warrior hat every time a, a guy hits a home run. And Shohei's the guy that brought the hat in, and it's legit. And so they put it on. After they hit the home run and they go out and they acknowledge the bullpen with a you know a big slash, uh, and, and there's been many times when Shohei hits it that Patrick Sandoval, one of the pitchers on the team, he'll take it off and he'll put the hat on Patrick Sandoval just so a pitcher gets to feel you know yeah I get to wear the helmet and he goes out and does the slash. So that's the kind of fun that Shohei brings into that uh, to that locker room and out on the field. And you're right when you watch opposing players. Everybody in the game of baseball is in awe of what he does. Both you and I know. I know one. I know one half of the equation. I know the pitching side of it. You know one half of the equation. You know the offensive side of it. You know how hard it is to prep and get ready for every night, every game that comes up. I know you know getting prepared for a start, everything that's involved, all the preparation that you have to do, not only mentally but physically. You're in the same boat on an everyday basis, the grind of everyday baseball, getting ready for that day's pitcher. To see this guy do it and do it at the elite level on each side of it, uh, it, it he's, got, he's got everybody in the game of baseball is in awe of what he has been capable of doing. Uh, and, and, and just, again, his attitude, is you can see it. It's infectious, the smile. He's enjoying it. And I think a lot of it has got to be given to Joe Madden. Joe Madden, when he came here, because before Shohei, when he first got here, he didn't hit three days or a day before he pitched. He didn't hit the day he pitched. And he didn't hit the day after he pitched. That was kind of the rules that he came with when he came over here. And the Angels were, were trying to keep him in that framework. Joe Madden came and came to him and said, Do you want to, if you want to hit every day, you can hit every day. I don't care. You have to let me know how your body feels and how everything goes. You want to hit the day before you pitch? Knock yourself out. Just let me know if you need an off day, and we'll give you a day off. Uh, and so Joe Madden took all the reins off this guy, took the wrapper off this guy and said, go have fun. Go enjoy. And that's what he told him. Go enjoy it. Go be that great player that you have aspired to be. 
And he definitely has excelled ever since that kind of they took the wrappers off him and just let Shohei, you just go do your thing and uh, let us know. Be honest if you need to take a break. And I don't ever see the guy take a break. I have never seen this guy take a day off. He can throw seven innings, throw 110 pitches, uh, and grind through a start. And he's in that lineup the next day. And I know what it feels like after pitching the next day, how your body is beat up. It's beat up. And Shohei posts up every day, every day. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That's, that's a great point, too. And because I think when we saw Shohei for the first time, the biggest question is, well, we've never seen this before. How do we right. handle it? Do right. we pitch him out of the bullpen? Do we give him, that, like you were saying, day off before, day off after? There's no formula. There's no track record. Right. There's no data points to go to. So maybe that's the best thing is let the player decide, you know, in a game today and you watch it, I watch it. It's different than when we played. The injuries are unbelievable. I sometimes I go, that guy's injured again, you know, and we're so cognizant and aware of pitch counts and yet more pitchers in the history of baseball are getting hurt nowadays. You look at, you, you look at the show, he formula and it's, we do what he tells us to do, right. and it's unbelievable. And and knock on wood, because that's the one thing, as a fan, I I, I think every day is is this too good to be true? He did right. it last. He did it last year. He did it the year before. He's doing it again. Right. It's almost like I want to put him in bubble wrap to walk <laughs> around life because right. we want to see this as long as we possibly can. Sure. He's coming up on free agency. I know Moreno had the <clears throat> had the team on the market. He took it off the market. I think because. He wanted to retain Shohei Otani. And I hear all this talk now as, oh, is he going to get traded so the Angels get something for him? Free agency is going to be a nightmare for, for everybody. There's going to be teams lining up, $600 million. I'm hearing all that. Yep. But when I'm asked as a player, I said, well, you're not talking about the important things. Where is Shohei comfortable? Obviously, he's comfortable playing at Anaheim yep. Stadium. He is. He hits there. He pitches well there. There's something to that as a player, you as a pitcher, me as a hitter, when I'm a free agent, I'm going to eliminate certain towns because I'm going, I hate that ballpark. I don't do well there. Yeah, the money's great. But if the money's all the same, it's where do I want to raise my kids? Where am I comfortable? Do I love hanging out in Newport Beach and playing at Anaheim State? My favorite offensive place of all time, Mark, was was back in the day, the big A now Anaheim Stadium. I loved hitting there. If I was 0 for 15 coming in, I'm like, I go, I know it's going to turn around here because sure. it always does. If Absolutely. I'm a free agent right now, Anaheim's in play for me because, man, I love hitting there. But maybe Kansas City's not because for some reason I don't see the ball, something like right. that. And people d- aren't realizing when they're talking about free agents, they're talking about oh, the Yankees and Boston, all the big boys are going to come after them. But they forget back in the beginning when Shohei originally came over to the States, he chose Anaheim. He did. There were other options. Yeah. He chose Anaheim, so we're so quick to just ignore, oh, he's definitely going to sign with somebody else. Well, why didn't he do that originally? Something about Anaheim drew him here. 
so it, I don't think it's just a closed deal like, oh, he's definitely you got to get rid of right. him because he's definitely not going to choose Anaheim. The money's all the same. And we all right. at this point are thinking yep. it's probably going to be north of 600. And it's not going to be a matter of one team offering three, one, six. All the money's going to be there. Sure. Comes yep. down to where is he happy for the next 10 years? Because that's a huge part of it. And if the Angels commit to building pitching around him, why not stay here? Why not play with Trout for the rest of his sure. career? And and whoever uh, Moreno decides to go after in the future. So right. I don't know. I, I don't think it's a done deal that he just leaves Anaheim. You're on the ground floor. You might be hearing something different. Yeah, no, I, I'm 100% with you. There's a reason he chose the Angels. And he chose the Angels. He had a chance to go to every team in baseball. He did choose here and he chose it you know there Mike Trout was a big part of that by the way Mike Trout was involved in the negotiation and talked to Shohei a couple different times in Zoom saying hey man we want you when you have the best player and everybody recognized Mike Trout uh you you want to listen to him and that's a, a big draw for him he is incredibly comfortable here. You know, you, routine. And he's a routine guy. He is all about a routine. Routine makes everything go well for you. When you are in your routine, you know, you know where to go to eat. You know, everything's just kind of in order for you. It, it means something to players to disrupt that and go and say, yes, you know, the, the finances are definitely going to be, as you mentioned, it's going to be large dollars. Anywhere he goes, whether he stays here, Dodgers, Yankees, where wherever that it's going to be, that is going to be fairly in the same ballpark. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, it, it does boil down to you know, are, are you comfortable here? But for Shohei, he's made it loud and clear he wants to win. Now the the Angels were in a good spot three weeks ago. They were. They were in the wild card. They were already in the wild card. And I think three or four games behind the Texas Rangers and charging, playing really well. And then all of a sudden, uh, the injuries hit. Mike Trout goes down. Brandon Drury goes down. Gio Urshela goes down. These were key guys. Zach Neto, the new shortstop. He goes down. And this team has sputtered since that time. Now, they got a couple of guys back. They don't have Drury back yet. And Trout won't be back until, man, I think mid-August at best. Uh, maybe later towards the end of August. Uh, so it, it, it is there enough to prove to show, hey, yes, this team is heading the right direction. I think they were, and that was the exciting part because you know how important that element, and that's important. That was an important element for me when I was a free agent. I, you know, I played in Seattle where we weren't very good. You played on the good Seattle teams. I didn't play on the good Seattle teams. Uh, you know, I had a little bit of taste of, of playoff stuff when I got traded to Montreal and they were a very good team. Uh, so when I, you know, wanted to be a free agent, I'm with the same boat. I started looking at which ballparks that I like, you know, which teams have a chance to win what, you know, you look for that combination and certainly the angels, you know, checked every box for me. They had missed the postseason by a game the year before I played against them so much. I knew their personnel pretty well uh, and felt comfortable that if that was where I was going to go, I felt very comfortable coming here. So those are all the decisions you have to make when you become a free agent. And for Shohei, he knows he knows this like the back of his hand. He knows that, hey, man, if these guys were still in the lineup, we would be a very good team. We would be a postseason team, you know. And, and now is there enough that uh, he's going to go, you know, maybe I'm going to try it somewhere else. 
And, and believe me, there are zero, zero guarantees when you leave wherever you are that that team is going to win. There are zero. You can look right down, right in your backyard, the Padres. They are, yep. on paper, the best team that you write those names down. You go, holy smokes, how does this team ever lose? They have a rotation, they have a bullpen, and they have some of the best offensive players. And yet we look at them today and you go, man, they, they – a, a real legitimate shot of not making the postseason. So there are no guarantees when you think, okay, I'm going to go play for this team because they're, they're going to win. Uh, and I, in fact, I have a little story when I, uh, when I went to Cleveland, my last year was in with the Cleveland Indians and back in the, the end of the nineties, there, there wasn't a better team than the Cleveland Indians. I mean, that team wins a hundred games, you know, just running out on the field because of the talent that they had. Uh, and the year that I was there, we got to the postseason. We ended up losing to the Red Sox in the postseason. So Chuck Finley, my, my real good friend, was a free agent. And I told Chuck, I go, Chuck, I, there are no guarantees in baseball because it's all about getting to the postseason. You, you and I both know that. That's why you put a uniform on every day is to get to the postseason. And I told Chuck, there are no guarantees, but this is the closest thing to a guarantee as there is. This is a powerhouse team in a weak division. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're going to win 100 games, and they, they're going to get to the postseason. So Chuck signs with the Indians, and I ended up retiring in spring training, and that is the first year that the Tribe did not go to the postseason that first year Chuck had. So uh, there, there are no guarantees that you think, okay, I want to go because I want to win. That team you're going to is going to be that team that's going to get you there. You're right, and, and that Cleveland team of – of the 90s they were unbelievable everybody the 90s team was the atlanta braves in the national league yes yeah but the the cleveland was the closest thing to that braves run braves sure. won one world series one and with arguably the greatest pitching staff in the history yep. of baseball assembled yep. for that 10-year period you're right this game is so fickle and you can line up perfect and yep. it doesn't matter that doesn't right. that doesn't automatically say you're going to win the world series. I think a lot of teams, you made a great example of the San Diego Padres this year, pitching a lot better than I thought they were, but they're 14th in offense with on paper, the best offense in baseball. So baseball, no rhyme or reason doesn't always make sense. The last thing about Shoei is he's, he transcends the game. He's one of those few guys. He's one of the few guys that a Philadelphia, and you know, Phillies fans, a Philadelphia Phillies fan, will cross the line and buy a Shohei Otani item. He's that big. And Philly right. fans are they're as faithful as anybody I know. He, they don't right. go outside of their Phillies, their Flyers, no. their Eagles. But Shohei, he's that big that people will go over the edge and go, well, yeah, but, uh, but I'll go watch Shohei Otani play. He's that, he's that polarizing. Right. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I, I, everywhere he goes – uh, it, it's, he's a draw and, you know, you, you've seen it with the superstars of the game of baseball. There's always that tug and pull. We saw it for so many years with Mike Trout. We had Albert Pujols here. Albert is a guy, you know, Albert was uh, still, you're going to go down. And, and I always tell everybody, you go look at Albert's numbers. Albert's going to go down maybe as the, one of the great, I mean, one or two is the greatest player that's ever put a uniform on top five, to, oh, ridi- top, top five ridiculous. Yeah, He's there sure. with, we're talking Bonds, Ruth, yep. Aaron, Mantle. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's a top five. I mean, you can, and you can flip those guys around a little bit. You can start yeah. looking at some numbers and maybe start popping these guys in different areas. So uh, these guys are pulled, man. They're, 
you, as you know, you've been through it. You, everybody wants a piece of you. Everybody wants a conversation with you. Everybody is, is showing up to watch that guy play. And that's Shohei right now. Uh, everywhere he goes, you and I were both up at the All-Star game. And, we, oh. and Shohei is, I mean, anytime anybody saw the red hat come out of the dugout, they started going nuts. So uh, it was impressive. And to hear that crowd up in, in Seattle screaming, you know, come to Seattle, the entire crowd was was singing that. I absolutely, I was not singing that, but uh, I heard it. It was very loud and clear. And he gets that reception everywhere he goes. He is a guy that everybody wants to watch. Everybody wants to know something about Shohei uh, because he is, he's, he's, He's having a season that, uh, and he's had been having seasons that, again, I I don't think we will ever ever see again. And as you mentioned, put the bubble wrap on him because you want this to continue for a long time because it is a blast to watch. The Seattle thing that you just mentioned, uh, Mark and I were both up in Seattle, and you know it was a whirlwind five days. It was exhausting, a lot of fun. It was, but I finally got a break. And it was during the game. And I and I remember when I go to the – if I ever go to a game, and I don't go to many games, I'm going to see you in a couple of days. I'm going to come up. Uh, Uncle Aaron, my brother's in town, oh, yeah. and I'll be up Wednesday. Um, but I, I don't go to too many games these days. But when I do, I always have to have hot dogs. So I was in – I was in the – I got to my seat, and uh, I was up in one of the Mariners' suites, and I was sitting down off – like, so I didn't have a view of the field. And I heard the show he uh, – chant breakout i got out of my seat i went up there and i watched that crowd and i went this is unbelievable and that's just another wild card too i got to see it 2001 when ichiro we were teammates and it was his first year it was unbelievable the fanfare that come with ichiro ichiro probably at the time him and sadahara oh were the two biggest japanese uh celebrities of all time now add shohei to that The people of Seattle know that they love Ichiro. Shohei grew up probably watching Ichiro. How much does that register into his mind? Like, wow, I'd love to go play where the great Ichiro Suzuki played. And by the way, when you're talking 600 million, and I know everybody's not putting this into the formula, zero tax in Seattle sounds pretty good too. (laughs) (laughs) It always sounds good. Yeah. Uh, When they're not taking it from you, that's always a good thing. But, uh, Ichiro is obviously a guy, anybody that's ever played in Japan, Ichiro is at the top of every one of these guys' list. And for Shohei, being an, a pitcher and an offensive player, of course, Ichiro, I remember the first time watching, you know, Ichiro still does stuff with the Mariners. He still puts the uniform on. on he's unbelievable. Yeah, he puts he his wristbands on. He's got everything. <laughs> you think he's going to pinch hit at some point. You know, he's ready to roll. And to watch Shohei come over, and acknowledge Ichiro's presence. It was fun to watch from the press box. And, uh, to, you know, and Ichiro punked him. And it was it was beautiful to see. You know, Shohei came over, and he went to, to start to bow. And Ichiro just turned around and walked away, walked the other direction. Left Shohei was, like, just standing like, what? He didn't know what to do. So uh, it was funny to see that. But there's no doubt that uh, Ichiro was a – had a big impact on, on Shohei. You Darvish was Shohei's favorite guy growing up, though. He's talked about it. Uh, you Darvish really, to me, he's he's been the one pitcher that's come from Japan that is second to none. I, yep, I Darvish, agree with that. 
when he first came over, it, it was like a different, a completely different animal that we had never seen over here. And it's basically what we're talking about earlier with the, the, that all the assortment of pitches that you Darvis came over with, with the, you know, the 98 mile an hour heater to go with it. He doesn't have that anymore. Still has plenty of velo, but he was 98 with a swing and a split and wipeout slider and great curveball. I mean, he had so many different weapons to use to show against you, but uh, Shohei, you uh, Darvish was big for Shohei. Uh, he's kind of mentioned it a few times that, you know, how that that you Darvish is, was this guy you looked up to. Same size. You know, Darvish, I think it might be a little bit tall. Darvish might be 6'5". Shohei's 6'4". Uh, but, you know, the, this, the same kind of built that those guys had. But Ichiro is, is always going to be, I think, you Dar anybody that comes from Japan, Ichiro is going to be always the guy. Now, does that play into that? Does that play? Right, that's what I was it? thinking. Yeah, well, you do play. I, I have no idea, you know, what rolls around in my head. I, You know, I think one of the things when he first signed with the Angels, uh, he and we heard this through the, the back, he didn't want to go up where there was already a Japanese superstar that has made that legacy. He didn't want to go in and follow that. He wanted to blaze his own trail. He wanted to to go somewhere where that trail hasn't been blazed. And I think that factored into it because the Mariners were definitely a team that I think everybody thought that were, that's where Shohei was going to end up. And, uh, you know, me included, I thought that was a, a natural fit. And just, you know, and to hear that kind of come through, and that was originally when he signed. Now I think it's a whole different ball game now. I think that uh, he's blazed his own trail he's very right. well. Right, he's yeah. not stepping on anybody's lawn. Yeah, no, no, and and, and you mentioned, true. and you mentioned you Darvish. He really is. I mean, you look back at what you Darvish has done. He's getting a little bit older now. He's had an unbelievable career. I think Hideo Nomo was the yep. first one that kind of he did broke the seal, and you Darvish kind of took it to another level. He did, definitely. I agree. Nomo, when he first came over, you know, we'd never seen anything like that, and and especially mechanically. And what he was able to do, playing for the Dodgers. You know, the Dodgers were always a great team. So a lot of exposure for him. Uh, yeah, he definitely opened that door. To, and I think all the, the players in Japan went, wow, he's doing it on the big, big stage. And everybody realizes that Major League Baseball is the big stage. I mean, right. uh, it's where if you're a player playing anywhere, this is where you want to play. This is where the best of the best of the best hang out. So I, I guarantee it opens up every eyes, every all the eyes when Nomo came over and really did a great job. Matt Suey, when he came over from an offensive standpoint, kind of really blazed that trail. He came over and did a nice job doing that. So, uh, you know, that, that's a wide open door now. I think, you know, obviously players that are playing in Japan realize, you know, if I can get over there, uh, that's where I kind of want to be. And we, we've seen so many more players come over here and, uh, you know, had success over here. The Seattle week, pretty amazing week. Um, we had your, and now I know, your roomie, Alvin yes. Davis, on uh, when I was up in Seattle. Mr. Mariner, uh, yeah. always one of the most gracious guys. When I was playing, you know, Alvin was retired and would always come around, and, and the guys just had nothing but unbelievable things to say guys that were closer to Alvin that had played with Alvin that were teammates right. of mine at the time. I didn't know him. I've got to know him over the year. What a wonderful man, first and foremost. But uh, we got to talking about those early days. You guys 
I think you broke into the big leagues the same time, 1984, Kingdom. Different world there in Seattle. I got to the Kingdom in 92, and it was still a much different world than it is now. Um, this week, this past week that that we both shared in uh, in Seattle, from 84, Kingdom, video game for me offensively. I'd walk into the Kingdom, it was like nothing I ever, you know, coming from the minor leagues. It was a different animal. You pitched there. Yes. Just Tell the audience the differences between Seattle in the early 80s versus 2023, now T-Mobile Park. Right. It's a it's a different world. It's definitely a different world than I remember in the 90s and had to be from the 80s when you started. Oh, there's no doubt about it. The Kingdom, there was a reason they had a dome, and there's a reason there's a retractable dome, even though I think T-Mobile is one of the most beautiful ballparks in all of baseball. But there's a retract. They have to have something that goes over it because it rains a lot up in Seattle. So they, they had to have that. So the Kingdom was that multi-purpose uh, dome where they had the Seahawks play here, there, and the Mariners played there. Uh, you know, I came up through the minor league system. Yeah, in 84, Alvin and I both came up together. We and Almost our entire double-A team emerged from – we had an unreal double-A team. We all kind of came up uh, together in the – you know, in – Harold Reynolds and, uh, you know, Jim Presley was there. Yvonne Calderon was out there. Phil Bradley. We all came up together uh, through the minor league system and, and got in there in the early 80s. Um, I didn't know any better. I, I knew what a hitter-friendly place that was. I mean, hitter, big-time hitter-friendly. But for me as a pitcher, I, I was so comfortable in that building from the standpoint of it felt like because of where the backstop was situated and there was about 12 feet up before the stands hit, it felt like the hitter was literally right. I was right on top of the hitter. I felt like I could throw it by anybody on that mound. It just gave you the illusion that you were throwing harder than you probably were. Uh, so it, it didn't bother me that it was, you know, I've seen, I believe me, I've seen broken bats leave that ballpark, you know, and guys get jammed and all of a sudden the ball's going out. I saw plenty of those there, uh, but it was uh, it, it was difficult. You know, when it was raining and cold outside, you were happy to be in there. And then driving across the I-90 bridge when it was just a glorious day and the water shining, people are on their boats having a great time, and you had to go into that big warehouse. That was horrible. You hated every second of it. And you would just dream that they would someday put a, you know, a beautiful ballpark that uh, – can maybe accommodate both, and they've done it with T-Mobile. It truly is one of the most beautiful ballparks that you could ever go to. Spectacular setting, the way it's where it's set up, and they do have the ability to roll the roof over when the weather gets crummy. And it's amazing. It, everything's so different now. You know, I, when I, when I was up there for the, I had to, I went over and I had an appearance at the uh, the draft. A okay. little different, a little different than our drafts, you know, and I'm sitting there, they got, they had Lumen Field, which is where the Seahawks play. They had that kind of, uh, they made a, they made a stage and, and fans were sitting in the seats for the draft and the kids are coming out and I'm thinking, wow, this isn't like my 1990 draft where I basically, I felt like I got a telegram to tell me exactly. where I was, to where exactly. I was drafted. Uh, you were drafted out of high school by the Cubs. You yeah. decided to go to San Jose State, your second round pick. Uh, with the Mariners, uh, tell me about your the your draft experience versus what you saw and how how the game is now. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. It's exactly the way you just explained it. You know, and, and going to San Jose State, I needed those three years of college, you know, coming out of high school. I'd never been away from home. And it, it's difficult. As you know, it, minor league level is a it's a whole different animal. And uh, when you were immature, se- I was 17 when I graduated from high school. And I, I just so blessed and grateful that, you know, God's path for me was different. Because I think I would have gotten chewed up had I had gone into the minor league level at that point. I was not prepared for it. I needed those three years in college to kind of mature mentally, physically. And then I had, you know, a couple of summer league, summer league teams that I played on. One is in Boulder, Colorado, uh, where we had the late great Tony Gwynn on there. Joe Carter was on there. Bobby Meacham, Spike Owen. We were star-studded. Joe Madden was the player coach on that team. Joe Madden caught me in that summer league team up in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, So uh, I needed that. So going into my junior year in college, uh, I started off 4-0, beat Stanford, beat Cal, beat Fresno, beat some really good teams. So there there was already talk that I was going to be one of the first 10 guys picked in the draft. Um, And then we went to Hawaii. I got sick over there. I lost some weight, lost a little velo. And by the time the draft came, I remember I had my agent and uh, he said, you may go in the first round. You may go in the eighth round. We don't know because the C I ended up, I think six and seven with a four and a half ERA, my junior year in college. So it was like, Oh no, I have no idea what, how it's going to play out. The Mariners took a flyer on me in the second round uh, and, and everything kind of came back quickly. I went to, you know, up in Bellingham, Washington and, and did the short season deal up there. And it just started to click. But the way I, I got the phone call, the same thing as you talked about. Bob Harrison was the scout that scouted me with the Mariners. He's the one that called me and said, you know, you were drafted in the second round. You had no idea until that phone rang, you know, whether you were drafted or not drafted. It wasn't on TV. Uh, it, and it was just once I, you know, the second round, it was a unreal, you know, experience. It's like, Wow. I now I'm ready for to uh, start my journey in, in professional baseball. So uh, it, it's totally different than what we see now. I like the way they do it now. I like, you know, the fact that they get, you get to see the emotions of these guys instantaneous because I was having those same emotions with my family. You know, when I got the phone call and you hang up, and then you're hugging your mom and dad and your brother. And you're like, you're so pumped up that, okay, here we go. We're, the journey starts right now. So I like the way they do it now. I think you bring up a good point. I thought I think you were 17 you were drafted. So you were a young yes. uh, high school senior, which is even more of a big deal. At the time, we don't think it's that big of a deal because we're right. 17. We're 18. We're the best in the world. Let me go. Right. Uh, but looking back, I think you're right. I, I don't think there's there's that rare exception that is physically and mentally mature enough right. for professional baseball. And I don't think you can have one without the other. You know, I, I think it's right. a process. College gives you a little bit of a buffer, a little yes. kid gloves to grow up, be yep. away from mommy and daddy. Yes. Uh, I still had an aluminum bat in my hand. So it was a kind of a maturation process. By the time I was a junior, I was chomping at the bit, ready to go. And it's the yeah. best decision I ever made going to college. There are the rare exceptions, the Bryce yes. Harpers, the Jim sure. or, or the, uh, the Chipper Jones, the Mike Trouts. Yep. that are ready to go out of high yep. school and, and bless them for that because there's Great. not too many of them, but they're, they're the exception, not the rules and dealing with young players uh, and parents 
of kids today. They don't understand. Yeah, little Johnny's really great in your little town and whatever. But the pro game is a different animal. The, yes. You're playing with kids that, that have been playing pro since they're 16 years old. And you go to Bellingham, which you mentioned, you might play against a 20-year-old Dominican kid that's been a pro yeah. for 16 years. This yeah. is a grown man. You're playing with yes. grown men now. And it's not for fun. You don't play a weekend college series. <laughs> you're playing every day. Exactly. And if you don't get the job done, guess what? You get fired. <laughs> exactly. Oh, so I, it, yeah, it, it's definitely a difficult. It, it, it's, you know, it's every kid's dream. You always, every kid, you know, you and I both, you grew up in around Major League Baseball. And so you got to see it from the inside, which is a, it's really cool. And the group of kids that you guys, you grew up, I saw Eduardo Perez last night, yeah. uh, you know, so uh, the group of kids that you guys had the, with Ken Griffey Jr., I mean, that's special, man, that you guys were able to deal with that. Uh, but it, it's as a kid, you I guarantee it, you were out even all on the major league field. You were going, I want to be here one day. We all did. I mean, every you can't get there unless you think that as a kid, you know, I, I want to get to that place at some point. I just had my four year old grandson came to a game uh, Saturday night. He, he's not really been that interested in baseball. He came to the game and he told his mom after, I want to play baseball now. I, you know, I want to, how do I get here is what he said at four years old. And so it was really cool to hear that, you know, and that's the experience of going there, feeling the crowd, watching these guys do their thing. That's all the excitement. You saw it firsthand. I saw it from afar, but going to games as a kid, I grew up in the Bay Area. So I saw Willie Mays, Willie McCovey. I saw Vida Blue and Reggie Jackson and all these guys, the A's and the Giants, you know, and uh, the impact that those guys had on, you know, me growing up in that Bay Area, uh, it, it was special. So uh, it, it's every kid's little his dream is to, to be able to go out there and do it. And then all of a sudden you get that opportunity. And, and you, we mentioned the draft. And again, coming out of high school, there are the exceptions of kids that are ready. And I think more kids are ready now because of maybe the, the way that the travel ball teams are set up. They're playing high level baseball you know, already at that point and have, have traveled and have done some traveling and have maybe been away from mom and dad where they may have had to work and they head off on some tournaments. But, uh, uh, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. Is a, is a guy that had been around the game uh, and still had some struggles in the minor leagues because he was 17 years old too, I think, when he was yeah. uh, first drafted. And, and it's difficult because – it's not on the field. That's your sanctuaries when you get to go on the field. It's that other time. And there's a lot of the other time, the downtime of, man, I got to cook for myself. I got to clean some stuff up because nobody's here to clean it. Mom or, you know, mom's out here to, to clean it, all that stuff up. Uh, so it's, 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 that's the difficult part is the outside of the game. Once you get on the field, that's the sanctuary. But it's the downtime, I think, that a lot of times where the problems can happen. Yeah. And uh, I, if man, you just bring me back to, to those minor league years and uh, you mentioned the young players today, they are bringing them up at a younger age. And at first I was looking at it going, wow, you know, I, I know what it was like when I got to the big leagues, I'm 22 years old and it was really hard. And I see these kids at 20. I'm like, I have to, you know, my sophomore year in college, I had to be in the big leagues. I would have no chance, but I think you're right. It's the way they're brought up now. It's the culture. Right. 
And when we got to the big leagues as rookies, I don't know about your experience. I know your rookie season, you led the league in punch outs. You won 17 games as a rookie. Uh, But I know when I first got to the big leagues, it wasn't roll out the red carpet for this hot shot prospect. It's like hot shot prospect. Keep your mouth shut. Sit in the front of the bus with the coaches. We'll let you know when we allow you to hang out with the real players. Speak when spoken to. Yeah. And prove to us you belong here. And it took us, it took me a while before I proved it. It seems like today they kind of roll out the red carpet for the young player. It's a little bit different. Us old kind of older school guys look at it like, wow, I had to really, you know, I had Chris Bosio and Jay Buhner breathing down my neck (laughs) every day. And it seems like these guys are are having a party. Now I think about it and I'm going, well, the welcoming way, is that better? Does it does it make him more comfortable and able to perform at an earlier earlier level? I wouldn't change anything. I had to learn my lessons. I had to be humbled. I had to get knocked sure. down and get back yes. up again. So so there's arguments on both sides. But yes, I think the reason for the younger players is they're much more welcoming. The veterans are much more welcoming and, and all encompassing. And hey, good to have you here. Whereas when we come up, some of those veterans wouldn't even look at you twice. Like, Hey, you proved to me before you have a right to even speak to me. It was different. It was, it was a tough love situation. Uh, I I couldn't agree with you more. And you know, in Seattle, we didn't have the real big veteran presence. Jim Beatty was on our team and Jim Beatty was our veteran on our team, you know, and I came up and you still are trying to find your way through. And I remember going up to Jim Beatty one time and we called him Zelmo and I go, Hey, hey, Zelmo, how would you pitch to this guy? And I remember <laughs> he turned and looked at me. He goes, are you talking to me? And I go, yeah, yeah how, how would you pitch to this guy? And he goes, here's how it works. If I want to talk to you, I'll go down to the end of the bench and I'll have a conversation with you. Other than that, there's no reason for you to be sitting next to me. Go back to that little corner where you were sitting in and get back there. And I just went, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I couldn't get back there fast enough. <laughs> so... I, you know, I, I got it. You tried to, you know, feel your way through. And yes, I had a, a, a good rookie year, but you were still, you know, where we didn't have the big veteran presence. But I, when I got to the Angels, you know, after being my after six years of the big leagues and after getting, you know, someone established, I didn't come in and go, you know, I, I just wanted to hide when I signed with the Angels. They had veteran presence there. You know, I just did, wanted to show up and do my thing. I didn't want to, you know, do anything other than that. Um, and so once you, you get in a few years with the team, then you realize, you know, your role changes with that ball club. And I remember I was that guy when they, every young player that came up, boy, I was made sure that first and foremost, that you were appreciative of where you were. This is, this is a gift where you are. It's not like you were supposed to be here. There's a lot of really talented players, (coughs) excuse me, in this locker room. So I wanted them to respect and to understand the respect that goes on tenure meant something back then in those days to where, uh, and that's the part that you wanted to hammer. You respect these guys that have been through this for a long period of time, sit back. Spike Owen had the greatest line. I I remember sitting around one time after a game and and we would all sit around, listen to the the chili dog, chili Davis, sit there and lay out the wisdom. You know, it'd be me and Chuck Finley, and then we did Spike Owen was there, and then Gary DeSarcina was the young up and coming guy. And he always, Spike always told him, DeSar, pull up a chair. But he goes, big ears, little mouth. We don't want to hear you. Listen to these conversations, absorb it, 
but we don't want to hear, we don't want your input. You know, we, we just, so, and then you would include them at some point, but Spike was really good at, at hammering that. And, you know, and I, I, I felt like I hammered a lot of the young guys uh, and I'm a lover. I am a lover. So it's like, it's difficult to kind of, kind of beat some guys down because you want yeah, them yeah, to. Probably had to. You probably had to go into character. <laughs> you definitely had to. Yeah. And then I, you know, I hear some of these guys after they got a couple of years going, man, we down at the minor league level, we were scared to death to come up because we heard about you were going to, and I go, Oh my gosh, that's painful. You know, it's like, cause I, I do nothing but want to encourage and help everybody along the way. So, <clears throat> um, it's, it's different in every locker room. And I agree with you now. Now these guys, young guys come up and, you know, they said, Hey, I should have been here yesterday. You know, what, what right. took you so long? You know, so I don't, that's not involved in the game anymore. And it's just the way the game evolves, whether we like it or not, you know, maybe I'm not the biggest fan of that. I see it a lot. There's a lot of things that I see in today's game that I go, I bite my tongue, you know, yeah. snap a pencil underneath the desk. You know, it's like uh, that. I don't, you know, that would have drove me, crazy if i was down in that locker room but it's just the way the kind of the game is played now so you you you've got to evolve with it because that's kind of where the game has evolved you may not like it as much but you understand that it's their game now it's not your game exactly and i and I, <coughs> I i thought about that it that's a great point it is their game it was our game but you know even this this last trip to seattle that's kind of my home turf you know and i'm down right. on the field for for the home run derby and that locker room, I walk in that locker room. I have so many memories. That was my locker room. Yes, me and me and Edgar ran that yes. locker room. And all of a sudden, but I step back now as as an right. ex and, and a veteran guy that I'm a little wiser. And I think, but I've got to be careful to respect these guys, these current players. This is their house. This is not my sure. house. No I'm a guest in your house, and I appreciate you having me there. Right. But uh, you know, and I think a lot of us do that nowadays. But yeah, each. Each, I always say this, each and every generation will be judged by history. Yeah. It's yeah. not for us to judge. It's to, to be fans and a, a change is different. None of it. A lot of us like change. Some sure. of it we like, some of it we don't, but, but life's going to go on and the game's going to go on without us. Sure. I was reminiscing, you know, getting ready for this, this podcast with you, Mark. And, and I'm looking over the names that you came up with. I see Marty Martinez, who we, oh, yeah. we recently has passed away. He was yeah. my first infield coach. <laughs> And I'll remember Marty to this day rolling barrels at my feet. You played for him. He was a manager for you for a minute. Yep. Tartable and Gorman yes. Thomas and the late yes. Dave Henderson. Yeah. Uh, Harold Reynolds, who I replaced in Seattle. So, man, your your time in Seattle, you had some big years. You had a 19-year uh, win season in, in 1987. Your first All-Star game. You won a couple gold gloves there. You led the league in punch outs three times. Um in 87, you punched out 245. In 88, 262. You had a lot of a lot of success in Seattle. The year, your yep. walk year, when you got traded to Montreal, yeah. uh, you were a Cy Young candidate that year. You went to Montreal. It didn't work out. You end up going to the Angels. Yeah. Uh, and then you had a long tenure in, in Anaheim. And yeah. you came in with the Brian Downings and the Dick Schofield oh, yeah. and, and – uh, you, you transferred on to the JT Snows, the Salmon, the Jimmy Edmonds, the yes. Garrett Andersons, who would eventually yes. in 02 win a World Series. And that's right. uh, that was my time when I was with the Mariners that right. we, we were we were opponents in that that American League West, which was such a, a dominant uh, 
division really back then. Um, Anaheim days. Love it. What's your, what's your selling point? Back to Shoei. How are you going to sell it? You played a long time in Anaheim. A lot of, lot of yes. success. A lot of gold gloves. A lot of all-stars. What's your suggestion to Shoei? Why should he stay in Anaheim? Well, you know, one of the, the, the true selling points is Southern California. I mean, that alone sells itself of that you will not play in better weather anywhere in the United States, L.A., Angels, San Diego. Uh, th- there's no better place. You know there's, there's no rainouts. It's going to be consistent. Uh, it may get into the 90s, you, you know, here and there, but for the most part, it's comfortable every night. Uh, that, that's, you know, the, for, to me, the first selling point, if you're a free agent, is always I want to win. You know, that, that's the part I want to win. Artie Moreno, I, I, there's a lot of people that, you know, are, ups, are always upset with Artie. Artie spends money. Artie wants to win more than anybody out there. He wants to win a world championship. Uh, he has spent money on the elite players uh, trying to put that whole package together. It doesn't work. I played for Mr. Autry, Gene Autry. He had the best of the best. Your dad played there, you know, and it's he tried to assemble the best players and, and try to do this kind of the same thing of put the best players on the field to win a world championship. Uh, it, it's 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 difficult. And we know there's just so many little factors that kind of sometimes play into that. And it hasn't worked out, but it, it's the best place to play. Uh, I remember when I played in Seattle, we'd come down and play against your dad and Reggie Jackson and uh, Bob, um, uh, Doug DeSensei, and obviously Rod Carew was there. And, and I'm, I'm a kid. I'm in awe looking at these are the stars. These are the stars I watched when I was a kid. Then I'm now I'm competing against them. There was always 40,000 people in that stadium at least every time you came down. The people here, you know, they 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 want to win, <clears throat> excuse me, but they also, um, you know, they appreciate the star players and they really like the star players. So for Shohei, again, it's the comfort zone. He's very comfortable here. The winning is the one thing that hasn't clicked for Shohei, uh, but I, I think this is truly the best uh you know, one of the best places to put a uniform on and play the game of baseball. You're down in San Diego. That is another unreal place. I got a chance to play with San Diego, go to the World Series with San Diego in 98. So uh, I, I know how special that city is. That's, I was born in San Diego. So San Diego is always near and dear to my heart. It was fun to, to get a chance to go play for the Padres. And then obviously the Dodgers right up the street. They're all part of that, that great weather hub that is here in Southern California. You mentioned 90, you, you left Anaheim in 97. You got to go to a world series of the Padres. You played right. on that great Cleveland. You, you, you retired after 1999 and uh, 179 wins over 2,400 punch outs, uh, three, nine, seven career ERA. Great career. Um, Looking back now, you've been in the booth a, a while now. Right. You get to follow this game on a daily basis. Um, you know, obviously the pitch count is the big, the pitch clock is the huge thing now. But I'm starting to hear a lot of buzz that that this uh, this elect, electronic umpire behind the plate it's it's got a chance to be a real deal. Now, as the purist 
uh, for a hitter. I love that umpire. I love that umpire behind the plate. I in the good ones, Mark. I right. get into the box. They establish their strike zone early. I know if you're giving me a couple, in, you're giving the pitcher a couple inches off the plate. I better be getting that one in off the plate. But the good ones would establish their their strike zone early, and we as hitters knew what the strikes and what the balls were. And right. each, no human being is going to be perfect. Right. You know, it's but establish your zone. Let me know what the zone is. I as long as I know what the zone is and you pitch and know what the zone is, that's a fair strike zone. It's changed today with the technology, with that stupid white box that everybody's an everybody's an expert. That's not even you know, and it seems like the plate's this wide, and it's really high. <laughs> yes, you know? exactly. I'm watching old games, and we used to just eyeball balls and strikes, and I, sure. I'd be sitting there watching a game and say, "That's a ball. It's a bad call." Right. Nowadays, it's like, oh, we got to if it hit the hit the box you're an expert right. Right. i don't like it uh do you think it's going there has it grown on you at all because i think it's going there it, oh, the yeah, way this sure. the way this game's going yeah. now one thing is maybe you're gonna have a pretty darn consistent zone but I, I don't like taking the umpire i like less change is better for me your thoughts on that on that uh on that possibility coming up Yes, the automated strike zone. And I didn't really know much about it. I know they're doing it at the minor league level, so I didn't know how it operates and how it works. I'm 100% with you. There was umpires that would give you that much off the outside part of the plate, and there was other guys that you couldn't get this much on the inside, you know, part of the plate that would have that real tight zone. Uh, and But you knew it. You knew it. And uh, you knew which guys. And I'm 100% with you. There's one thing has to happen. It's either you eliminate that box on TV. And I, I talk about it on the radio. It's not even precise, by the way. Right. That, that's kind of our thing we're looking at. And I go, I would say it on the radio. I go, well, if you believe in the box, that's that, that touched the box. If you know, so uh, I don't, I it's coming. It's going to, you're going to have automated strike. So, but this is how it's going to work. The umpire is going to umpire like a normal scenario. I mean, he's still going to call balls and strikes. It's not going to go beep, beep. No, it's going to be the umpire will call the balls and strikes. You as a player, and I think you get three as a team, three challenges during a game. This is kind of the way it's been presented to me, to where if you're up there and you're going, there's no way that was a strike. You just touch your hat, and it is immediate. And I'm talking instantaneously. It goes on the video board in the stadium, and you get to see, and it's just like tennis the way they have it to where you get to see when they review it, if there's the line, whether there's a mark on the line or there isn't a mark on the line, you get to look at the video board and it's instantaneous. It's not going to take a long time. So you step out you do this. That's not a strike. Boom. It's up on the board and you will see that is either a strike or not a strike and off you're back playing baseball again. So when it was explained to me, I went, all right, I'm into that, you know, because you always look for, You've been rung up. I got tech. I got screwed in a World Series game yes, against you did. the Yankees on a two-two pitch that was a strike. Uh, so you always want you want that. You want that to be consistent. What's a ball is a ball. What's a strike is a strike. I had a long conversation with Tim Salmon a couple of days ago, and he brought up a great point. He he says, as a hitter, and you would know this again better than me. You know what's a strike and what's not a strike. You know that. He said, the only thing that makes me chase stuff that's not a strike is that umpire that's behind home plate that all of a sudden, if that's a strikeout that far off the plate, now I have to expand what I know is a strike because of the umpire. So he says, 
he thinks that with the automated strike zone, it's going to help hitters immensely because they know the strike zone. You guys know what strikes are. The only thing that gets you to chase a lot of times out of the strike zone is that guy that's behind you that maybe expands that zone normally that you wouldn't get. Now that forces you to maybe chase something that you know you wouldn't have chased, but you're not sure if he's going to call it or not. I don't know if I explained that well, but uh, that's it made sense to me that uh, it, it definitely is coming the automated strike zone. Uh, and the way it was pre- presented to me, I think that's a, a pretty cool, I think it would be a lot of fun to see. What I see, and I may, I may be wrong here, uh, just being a, you know, it, watching the game nowadays. Yeah. And I'm not on the ground level, so I don't know. I'm not in that actual game. But it seems to me the the relationship between players and, and umpires has changed. I mean, yes. that was the oh. cat and mouse. That was a part yes. of the game. I was at second base, and I'm, oh, yeah. I'm chatting with that second base umpire because guess what? Two nights from now, he's going to be behind the plate. Oh, yeah. and, they, and I want him to be my friend. So oh, if he yeah. did, you know, so I'm doing whatever I can. I'm politicking whatever I can. And this is kind of the running thing. Joe West, love oh, yeah. him or hate him. Uh, Joe West would be behind that plate. And my way of, of walking to the plate and saying hi is, hey, what's going on, fat ass? How we doing tonight? Now, that <laughs> my, that was my way of saying, hey, Joe, hope you're having a good day. He knew that. He'd make he a did. short, short joke or something. That's how we interacted. That was our friendship. But right. that was a part of the relationship you had with sure. umpires. I don't see that so much these yeah. days. It seems more robotic. The yep. umpires are more, I'm here to do a job. And the players are, you know, they there's more fraternizing amongst players than there used to be in, in my day or your yep. generation. That's true. But I don't see the fraternization with the umpire the way it used to be. Umpires used to be, hey, Joe, how you doing? Hey, Booney, you got any advice for me tonight where I should go to dinner? We had that relationship. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see it as much in today's yeah. game. I, I, I'm with you. I watch games all the time. And as a pitcher, we didn't have the luxury of buttering them up like you did. And you making sure that zone got a little tighter. Than oh, I took was, full advantage. We didn't have that chance to go out there and, and put our arm around that umpire and have that conversation. I'm with you. I see these conversations. But if you think about it, you think about what is on these umpires' plates now. Oh. There's so much more now on their plate. With pitch clocks, they're watching a, a clock to see, okay, uh, it's a pitch violation because he didn't throw it in time or he wasn't staring at the pitcher, didn't get in the box with eight seconds left. There is so much on these umpires' plates. that, uh, and, and, again, the box is a big part of that. I think the box crushes these umpires because they know that hitter can go back immediately to the dugout right. and, and, and get a quick view. We didn't have, I didn't, that wasn't around when I played it. Probably, I know it was maybe backside it, of your career. It wasn't, it wasn't me. I had to go off into the, okay. the media room, but we didn't have access like they do today. Exactly. So they could go back immediately on that iPad and watch that at bat and see where that pitch was and have that instant response back to that umpire. And that umpire is going to know, man, I probably boxed that up because they have the technology that's going to say one way or the other whether that was a strike or not. So difficult. It's so difficult to be an umpire to start with, to start with. You know that one half of the equation is always going to hate you and the other side of it's going to love you. So it's uh, it's a difficult gig to do. These guys are the best of the best, and they truly are. When you sit and watch this, you watch a play happen, and you visibly see it, and you kind of render your decision in your head, and then you have to go back and watch it in super slow-mo 
to find out whether that call, whether they got it right or not. And you're going, holy smokes, that guy drilled it. I thought the guy was safe, but he saw it and he, he made the right call in that. It's impressive uh, what these guys do. And, you know, it's, uh, um, it's a difficult job. I, I think, is there the, you know, the relationship that there used to be? I don't see that at all. And again, I don't know if it's a byproduct of, of too much on the umpire's plate to be able to have those conversations or visit the box to where that umpire can't relax and have his zone, whatever his zone is that night. That's his zone. The pitcher knows it. The hitters know it. They know that they're going to maybe not be happy with one way or the other, kind of the way it plays out. And that's where you, the buttering up, you could be out there going, Hey, you know, that this guy, the other night, it, it's, he throws a lot of pitches that look like strike, you know, Heck, I had a catcher, Scott Bradley, when I was in Seattle with the Mariners, uh, he would tap the umpire every time we'd go on that inside part of the plate to let him know, don't you give up on this. This He can he can establish that inside. He would tap him on the back of the leg every time that we came on the inside part to let him know, get a really good look at this pitch. Because a lot of times umpires would give up on that uh, and to let him know, this is where we're coming. We're coming in here. Take a good look. So those are little things, you know, it's, it's, it's relationship stuff that you can have. And maybe it's not there as much. Again, I'm with you. I'm not on the field. You, you don't really know how it's playing out. It doesn't look like it's there, but uh, maybe it is. Uh, I'm not a huge, I don't like change. I don't, I'm always pessimistic about change. This pitch clock thing. I was pessimistic. I think it's been a home run. I look at it. I think it's done everything. <laughs> that and more ex players, veteran players like yourself, I'm hearing the same thing. Like Booney, I didn't think it was going to be good and it's been great. Uh, you know, I hated, and you being a, a guy that picked off a lot yeah, of, sure. a, a lot of runners, you know, you, I remember it just in my playing days, there was Langston, there was Gary or Gary. Um, there was Pettit in, in New York, the lefties that really, hung in the air and you couldn't just take off on him. You picked off. I think you're the fourth most ever in the history of the game pickoff wise. But I thought, you know, the elite base runners are really going to take advantage of the two disengagement rules right. and the pitch clock. And it wasn't going to be fair, but now looking at it, the, the reason behind those rules was to encourage the running game to yes. get people running again, to get yes. more excitement. That's what the fans want to see. I think they've really, hit their goals on what they were trying to do. Now, maybe in the future, they'll, they'll, they'll reel back. There'll be a tweak here and there uh, as the elite runners start to steal a lot of bases to curb that. Right. Cause it really is not fair to you. And it's oh, not no. fair to that catcher. The, the two disengage. you imagine Ricky Henderson playing today <laughs> with the two. I mean, he'd be sitting over there laughing at you. Like when, yeah, when do you want me to go, but I think it's good for the game. Um, your thoughts on that as a pitcher. Yep. Being a pickoff was a huge part of your repertoire. Yeah. Uh, how would you do in today's game? I think guys like you would still have a little bit of an edge because me as a runner, I wasn't a base stealer. I'd steal one when you weren't paying attention to me. But I knew if I had Mark Langston on the mound, I'm definitely – I'd always go first move off a lefty for you. I'm usually staying put that at bat. Yes. Oh, there's no doubt. I, I think, you know, it's being a lefty – um, and only having two chances because a lot of times you don't want to show that a move right out of the gate. You want some setup moves to kind of lull the guy to sleep, thinking, okay, 
you can you make some obvious stuff, you know, and always I, I, I spent I can't begin to tell you the hours I spent in front of a mirror trying to watch what my body's doing when I throw to first base, when I, you know, I start to go home. You try to you try to sync it up to make it look the same. Um, so it, it's and, and you you want a couple of moves that are they're crummy, that look bad. That's an easy read for that guy to maybe get comfortable to take that, maybe that half a step more off the base. And I had a quick step off move. That's what kind of was the neutralize, neutralizer for me was, you know, I saw you take, maybe take that extra half a step. And then I, I had a real quick move that I would get guys that direction. Uh, that part, I'm not, I'm not as keen on with the two pickovers. Uh, that one, I maybe not the biggest fan of uh, the, the cl pitch clock. I'm into it. I love it. I think it's great for the game because nobody wants to watch a three and a half hour game. Nobody, everybody in the games. We had a three hour game last night. Uh, maybe because it obviously was ESPN game to where the commercial times are longer than normal. But uh, usually these games are running that two thirty, two forty. Man, when I first came up to the big leagues, that's those were the game times. Umpires like, let's go hustle in and hustle out. There wasn't the big, you know, the, the times. And all of a sudden, you know, we got to baseball where every game was three hours and 20 minutes, three hours and 40 minutes. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody. So all it does is kind of eliminate the guy stepping out, redoing his batting gloves, maybe the pitcher walking around, you know, uh, taking his time, getting his breath. It kind of just gets going. The one problem that I have with it from a pitching standpoint is I, I know as a pitcher, the game will start speeding up on you. All of a sudden, you know, there's – blue pit and then there's a walk next thing you know oh my gosh there's there's a bunch of traffic to where and then you you can still do it you can still call timeout and, and just walk behind the mound and kind of go take a breath and go what is going on i you know how do i get out of this jam it, it seems like that speeds the pitchers you know that keeps them going at a pace to where they aren't getting that opportunity to maybe take that breath and kind of reconfigured and, and do that. That's the, the small little thing that I've seen. Um, but other than that, man, I, I'm all in favor of, of all the rules, even the bigger bases. I, you know, I kind of went, eh, what's, what's the big deal. You, you and I both grew up in the game where the game was totally different, how it was played to where a double play, your job was to get that guy that was going to turn that double play. You as a second baseman, no, that guy's barreling in on you to, to kind of whichever way you're going, they're trying to anticipate which way you're going and try to track you and follow you to try to sweep your legs or try to disrupt that throw from you. That is so eliminated. Now these guys, they could stand on the base and turn a double play. They don't have to worry about anybody crushing them or getting into them. that part. I miss, I, I miss because I think that's was a cool part of the game uh, where there were, that's you're talking about athletic ability. You had to be athletic as a shortstop or a second baseman to, to keep from getting crushed. And I know that they, they want to keep their star players on the field. And that's where the Buster Posey rule at home plate, crushing the catchers at home plate. And now it's, you know, the goofy rules. I'm not, I see that a lot too, where is the catcher in the right spot when he's retrieving the ball? Did his body shift? Did he give him a lane to home plate? Uh, you know, all of that stuff to where, boy, your dad, I, I know your dad's got a zillion stories oh, of just. It, dri it, drives you, it drives him crazy. Yeah. You know, you talked a lot, even the veteran catchers, that took a lot of abuse at home plate. I mean, a lot of abuse 
at home plate. And they're like, gosh, you know, it's because you, you know, that's, that's one little part that maybe I'm not as big as bad as giving the guy late. And as you as a runner, would you ever come home head first to a catcher? You know, back in the day, there's no. no chance of it. That catcher with his gear on would try to crush your shoulder or right. crush your arm. You would have to go in with your feet just for protection of yourself. Everybody slides head first coming into home plate now. And it's like, man, that is that's danger back in the day. You would never do it because you know that guy with all that gear on is looking, you know, he knows he's gonna get hit, so he's gonna try to protect himself. So maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. I, I'm not a, a big a fan of that one, but uh, and that rule has been in play for quite a while. But they're still trying to figure it out. By the way, I see it on a nightly basis. Whether did he give him a lane? Didn't give him a lane? You have to go back and watch again and watch replay. But the pitch clock, I'm into it. Uh, the two pickoffs throws at first, maybe not so much. It's but I get the get what they're trying to do. They want offense. They want offense. People come to see you guys. You know have. And that's what makes the game. Uh, and they're maybe trying to get guys on the move because that creates excitement because there's athletic ability that's involved in trying to throw the guy out, make the tags. I, I like it. I, I So far, all the rules, the new rules I'm into, the pitch clock, I know it's coming. And after it was explained to me, I think I'd be okay with that one too. Yeah, the second, the, the, the double play. Yes. I mean, I took as a second baseman. That that's what I ha hung my hat on. That's how I separated myself from the no average question. second baseman. Yeah. Can I turn that big double play with someone trying to knock me in the left field? Nowadays, a relief pitcher can turn a double play, and it drives <laughs> me crazy as a second baseman. Yeah. I get your engagement thing. I was concerned a little bit too with you say the pitcher needs a breather once in a while. That was my job as a second baseman. If I see my teammate Mark Langston and I know he needs a breather right now, hey, time. We're going to come talking. We're not going to talk about anything. We're going to talk about after the game what we're doing. But I know you need to settle down right now. Sure. That was yeah. my job as an infielder. Can't do yeah. that anymore. I'm right. a little worried about that. But the one thing that I think they're going to have to tweak from the off from the pitch clock standpoint is you have to engage at the eight second mark. Yeah. Now there are pitchers out there that'll that'll play games with you, hold sure. the ball on you. Yeah. But always as an offensive player, I had the option. Oh, you're going to play this game? Timeout. Now I don't have that option, so right. you can hold the ball at me. I think they're going to have to bring that down to maybe a four- or five-second engagement rule so you can't just hold the ball on me eight I seconds agree. every time. So, yeah. I, you know, there's little tweaks. I mean, nothing's yeah, going to be perfect sure. from the outset. I but agree. but I think overall, I think a positive result has come from these changes. Last thing, I'll let you get out of here. I know I kept you longer than I told you. Uh, something that's near and dear to my heart, because I came up, as a prospect with the Mariners and, and I had that label of, Oh, he's an offensive second baseman. And I always used to get pissed and say, you know what? I, I'm a damn good second baseman. And I worked hard defensively. And I remember sure. when I started winning gold gloves, it was the as fulfilling as anything in my life. Cause people always said offense, offense. And I thought, no, I can play defense. And I remember getting that first gold glove and thinking, this is awesome. You know, later in my career, as I got older, it gave me a, some solace. I mean, because you're not going to hit all the time. And I always had that glove to go out and, and kind of keep my mind off how bad I'm, I'm swinging the bat right now. And, right. and it was really a, a sanctuary for me. I took pride in it. I couldn't wait to go play defense and take a hit away from somebody. So at least I'm, I'm helping somewhat in this game. Right. You were a guy, there's not too many guys at the, 
you're pitching that have won gold gloves at a rate that you have. Obviously, Jim Cott just went in the Hall of Fame, had, I don't know, 52 gold gloves, whatever he had. <laughs> you know, Greg Maddox was an unbelievable yeah. Yeah. Uh, defensive pitcher. I know that's not the, the most important thing when it comes to taking the mound every fifth day, but you won seven of them. How much pride do you take in, in that gold glove? I know for me, I took a lot. How about for Mark Langston? Oh, it, it uh, and again, when you get, you get that very first one, man, it is, it, it, it is, it's something I worked, I worked incredibly hard at just, as you just talked about, it, I just didn't take it for granted. I worked, I looked for extra outs where I didn't have to throw a pitch. I looked for my second baseman or a shortstop made eye contact with him. I, I looked for little things like that. I took a lot of pride and it, it's back in the day where they bunt it. They don't bunt anymore. We're looking at bunt numbers last night. I looked at 1985. The Dodgers were number one in baseball. They bunted 101. They had 101 sacrifices. The Angels were number two with Gene Mock. They yeah. had 99. Gene Mock would always bunt. They, oh, they bunted back in those days. Right now, the Arizona Diamondbacks lead the majors with 19 sacrifice bunts. Uh, and the Angels, I think I have. they have two or three sacrifice bunts. They don't anymore analytics can't stand it they don't like giving up outs and i and i i've always said this they, they've never been that guy that stood on the mound when that guy's at first base you have my attention when you're at second base you have a lot more of my attention when you're at third base with less than two outs you have my full attention now i have to think about can i bury the breaking ball what out all this stuff is going on in your head so the bunt side of it is taken out of the game. So I had so much pride in the bunting, certainly first and second. I would always tell my third baseman, you stay there. I've got this side. I've got the – and I would say it loud enough to the hitter knew it. I've got this side. You just stay back. I'll get it, and we're going to get that out over there. I would say it loud enough to where that hitter heard it, and you could almost coerce hitters into bad bunts. And I would get these bad bunts and get be able to get aggressive outs. But I took pride. I love PFP. It's free trade. <laughs> I hate it. I hate no, it. I know you did. I know the infielders <laughs> hated it. And you, you guys had no business being over there going through this crap day after day. But I loved it as a pitcher because I knew this was these things are going to make me better. And I hated the fact that you do it every day for a half hour, 45 minutes every day. And that's it. You do it through spring training. And you rarely see teams do it again through the rest of the season. Uh, we, we see it now. Teams are more apt to, like the Angels would definitely do it with Nev. Uh, they're doing it a little bit more. I've seen them, I think, once a homestand or maybe twice a homestand. They'll get the pitchers and they'll run through some PFP stuff. But uh, it, I, I, I loved fielding. I wanted to be a shortstop. I wanted to be a shortstop so bad. I took ground balls at short every day in the kingdom. <laughs> every day I would take ground balls at short. And with the Angels, we had the late great Jimmy Reese, who was Babe Ruth's roommate. He was Abafongo. I got ground balls every day from this guy. And that's one thing that I think is missing because, and Marcel Latchman would do it afterwards also. You know, he would hit us ground balls, you know, after Jimmy Reese passed away. Latch would come out there and hit us fungos. But every day, Jimmy Reese, Babe Ruth's roommate, would come out, 10 for cigar, kid, here we go. And he'd start hitting you these ground balls. And you, you know, it weren't a couple of them wouldn't come in hard. So you'd drop your glove and you'd mess with them. And you'd feel them barehanded. He would get pissed. And that last one, he had the ability to put that little extra spin on it and go, whoop, whoop, 
and he'd get you and you look back and he'd be high five and the guy catching him going, <laughs> you owe me a cigar kid. So I, I took ground balls every day. I, I, as you mentioned, I worked hard at that crap. I wanted to be a really good fielding pitcher. I think my, uh, Played soccer as a kid. I played all through high school and two years in college. I played baseball and soccer in college. That helped my lower half. That synced up uh, my my legs with my upper half. And so I had quick feet. And that's when you are going to win a gold glove, you better be quick on, off that mound to be able to get to some things, help your fielders where they're playing back. You have responsibilities. And, I, and again, I took pride in that. I, I took a lot of pride into either fielding balls or looking for that out where I don't have to throw a pitch to home plate. I looked for that. And that's part of being a gold glove is looking for those outs where they're there, they're available. You just have to be paying attention to them. You have to have a good second baseman or a good shortstop that, you know, you know, their, their mechanism to as soon as they start, they just do this. You're wheeling around and you're throwing because you know, a hundred percent that that guy will be on the receiving end of that. Uh, it, it's those are little things that little nuances that I took a lot of pride into making sure that when I took them out, that I was going to control that aspect of it. This is awesome. It was an awesome time. Thanks. Thanks Mark Langston for coming on the program. A lot of fun. Great to catch up. Uh, I'll see you in a couple of days. I'm going to come yell at you. I'm going to get there early. I got to make my rounds. Go see you. Oh, mentioned yeah. Phil Nevin. It's kind of like my other little brother. So when I go sure. up there to see Aaron, I pop over and I see Phil. Uh, all the best. Great career for all you out there listening. You can catch Mark each and every night uh, tuning into the L.A. Angels. Uh, and good luck second half. I think it's going to be tough in that division. I think you're yes. going to have at least three coming from the east, one in the central, yeah. and two in the west. So the Angels got their work cut out for them. But yeah. So do the Mariners, and, yep. and with Houston and Texas being better, uh, it's going to be an interesting run uh, towards the pennant. Thanks again, Mark Langston, and for all you out there at the Boone Podcast listening, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.